Seed Heads, the cross-pollinating podcast where our Canadian seed heroes tell their stories, share their how-to tips, and talk about the seeds they love. I'm your host, Steph Benoit, coming to you from Vancouver, BC, on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. For today's episode, I had the honor of talking to Audrey Logan. Audrey is a Nehio and Métis knowledge keeper currently living in Winnipeg on Treaty 1 territory. They founded the Clinic Teaching Garden, a regenerative community garden rooted in Indigenous permaculture principles at 545 Broadway in Winnipeg. They also run Dehydration Nations, a grassroots initiative which hopes to empower individuals and communities to harness the traditional method of food dehydration and pair it with nation-to-nation trade as a way of promoting food sovereignty in Treaty 1 territory and beyond. Audrey has had an incredible life, and their depth and breadth of plant knowledge is formidable. I was lucky enough to talk to them over multiple conversations, which have been condensed here into one episode. We talked about building a thriving Indigenous permaculture garden from an empty lot, climate adaptation, stewarding rare heritage seeds, traditional perspectives on cross-pollination, a lifetime of urban foraging, and so much more. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy. When, when I start getting deep into things, yeah. <laughs> it kind of has a mind of its own. And as my auntie shared with me, you know, that's that's what we call when the spirit mm. uh, moves you to be able to share, you know, that in our DNA, we carry our, our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers and our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers, mm-hmm. no matter who they be, and that it's not just Indigenous grandmothers and grandfathers we carry, mm. that we carry the DNA of all the ancestors. So, you know, I occasionally like a little bit of fiddle. <laughs> oh my and, and it, you know, it explains my, my uh, music diversity yeah. as well you know that it's not just one thing i like that and that goes back to being a humanist more so mm-hmm. you know than uh, being separated by so-called race race is a contrived thing that's actually very new mm-hmm. uh, considering and uh, you know when we go back to the history of growing and plants in every culture there were uh, diverse growing methods mm. and uh, diversity in plantings no one did the monoculture except for ones who were forced to mm-hmm. and you know whether it was the greeks or the romans one of the two <laughs> <laughs> but uh, again they can go back as far as the hittites and, and others who there again would subjugate others to grow food for them for their military services mm-hmm and that's happened many times in many different times. And uh, and that there would come a time, though, when enough people would uh, get together and be able to see that, you know, it's the diversity of seed and the diversity of people that can help heal the planet in a good way, mm-hmm. or at least be able to adapt. Adaptation is what we do. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the ones who don't adapt and the ones who don't allow change to happen that fall fall victim to their own demise mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and their own ideology of perfection. 
Well, and that has so many carryovers into dominant agriculture today, where everything is seen as competition amongst plants instead of the ways they cooperate, and everything is just grow one thing on as big of a scale as you can. And yeah, we are seeing very clearly today what we've what a lot of uh, people have known for a long time in terms of we need diversity <laughs> within our systems, otherwise they don't keep going. Mm-hmm. But it does not mean to say things are gone forever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and things, there again, it's up to us to change that. And that's why I think, you know, there's, there is a lot of real want to go back to the old ways, but yet that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Anyone, yeah, anyone who tries it, you're like, oh my God, yeah. this is impossible. And it's like, well, yeah, because it took community and unity in order to do all the things that are needed in order for society for society to thrive. Mm-hmm. So the old the old uh, adage of uh, butcher, baker, candlestick maker basically was saying that, you know, without the butcher, the baker can't bake the bread without the lard, mm-hmm. you know, and the tallow is needed for the candlestick maker. Mm-hmm. Yet the candlestick maker is not going to become the butcher. Right. Right. And in indigenous culture, that's why when one had a gift, they would spend that time honing that gift. So a person who was a maker of baskets would not turn around and say, I'm going to now become a gardener mm-hmm. right? because their, their gift is basket making or their gift is working with the clay. Some of the clay pots that were made by our people, even here in Thompson, were four feet wide. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I ain't carrying no no pot four feet three or four feet no no hunter gatherer. No, you know. But I think that but that's a myth. Uh, that's a myth that was spread because at that time of uh, um, European incursion, that in order to justify taking over land, they had what was called the doctrine of discovery, mm. and that was allowed by the Pope to say that if you discover lands that are not being used like we use it with the till mm-hmm. and, you know, tilling of the soil, then you can claim it in the name of God. Yeah. And that's how uh, many of the lands here were justified in being taken over mm-hmm. because they did not understand the method of permaculture, which is a modern word for traditional knowledge and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and diversified growing to where when we did a, like people know the three systems, corn, bean, squash, but there's actually seven because it goes along with the seven teachings. And the other four were the uh, sunroot, sunflower, tobacco, and then self, because women were the land stewards at the time. And here in North America, it was, most of it was matriarchal, uh, passed on. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we know from the writings from Mr. John A. McDonald, he did not wish to want uh, talk with ones who wear pantaloons, and so impose, yeah, and so impose the Indian Act to put men in charge instead of women, mm-hmm. and thus got rid of the clan mothers and the, the hereditary chiefs, which were passed down through the female side, not the male side. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you know, there again, it adds another sense of divide when it comes to. Uh, what is a status Indian compared to a non-status Indian to bear to enfranchise, mm-hmm. you know, and when you look at it in the same way as seeds, 
what's the difference between an heirloom seed and a hybrid seed and you know genetically modified and a lot of it when you look at it is almost pertains even to humans you know hmm. where we have the heritage seed where some think everybody is but in reality everybody's hybrid <laughs> Because <laughs> nature is like that. You're yeah. not going to stop a bee from visiting a, a certain flower unless you cover that puppy up. Yeah. You know, and even then there's no 100% guarantee that it's not going to eventually revert to its parentage seed anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so this idea of purity is something that many indigenous groups were not cool with. Yeah. Because they knew that was very unnatural and... The only, th- only thing purity brings is sterility. Mm. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. So many, many, uh, like there's, um, uh, I used to love this one. It was called butternut squash. But now it's been bred so much just for the size and the shape of it that it no longer has the nutty flavor that it used to have. Mm-hmm. Right? Same with certain tomatoes. Now just they don't have no flavor, no taste. Mm-hmm. You've been so inbred mm-hmm. that uh, it's, it's no different than the Habsburgs. If you learn about history of Germany and the Habsburgs, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Too much inbreeding. <laughs> and eventually, becomes sterile and a little crazy. <laughs> well, I remember... Um, you know, in one of our previous conversations talking about, I think the first thing I asked you was, okay, so how do you, uh, how do you get a, a tomato or a seed to grow true to type? And you're like, the first thing you need to do is get over trying to get, grow it true to type. And it was just such a reflection for me of like, wow, that is such a colonial mindset of trying to reproduce everything exactly as it was before and trying to like control, uh, either cross-pollination or just, I mean, nature as a whole. I think that was a really profound point that you made. And and I feel it, too, in that sense of, you know, the colonization aspect is I'm taking something from here, and I want, when I take it over there, I want it to look the same. Without mm-hmm. taking into account that the air is going to be different, the water, the soil, the way you cultivate it, the environment is going to be different. So why expect the same result? Mm-hmm. That totally changes. Uh, and that's why in a micro environment within a city, you can go from a, what's considered a zone three up to a zone five mm-hmm. by just having a microclimate in within the, your own city and within your own block. You can bring it up to a zone seven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've had and I've known of people who've grown kiwi here in Manitoba. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I've seen pear trees here in Manitoba, mm-hmm. out on a farm. And the thing is 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Pears are hard as rocks, mind you. Yeah, they're not good pears. <laughs> Make sure you wear a hard hat when gathering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I gathered it, and I found that the trick to getting it to taste actually good is to freeze it. Yeah. So what I found was by freezing many things, it does break down the fiber and breaks down the sugars. And mm-hmm. then uh, from that, I poach them in tea, delicious as a dessert. Wow. Right? And then I've also made them into wine. Yeah. Nice little extra dessert. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But uh-huh. by freezing them, it broke down the fibers and the textures to where then it would, became very palatable and delicious yeah. and sweet. Oh, my goodness. Really, really good. 
Yeah. And I think, but I think, there, yeah, there's something that you were alluding to there that I, um, I think about sometimes is like just the importance of embracing place and where you are and not having everything available everywhere. There's something really beautiful about something that you can only find in one place or under one set of conditions. And instead of trying to replicate that and making it <laughs> grow on the moon, um, it's it's kind of nice to embrace that like this is a sense of where you are. This is a sense of what grows here. And and because our indigenous people did Pan-American trade, that's what threw many of the archaeologists off. Yes. They were analyzing the phytoliths in pots. And phytoliths are the microscope, microscopic uh, residue that plants and animals leave in a pot that when people have been cooking it. And our traditional pots were not flat-bottomed like westernized ones because we didn't put them on grates over a fire. We put them in the coals like you would, like a slow cooker. Mm-hmm. So, so they were cone-shaped. Hmm. And because they were cone-shaped and you can snuggle that into into the coals, you could constantly have something on, on the heat in the slow cooker, right? And if you know about our native meats, you know you have to do it low and slow. If you do it high heat, quick, it toughens the meat up like you want to believe it. Ugh. <laughs> I can imagine if I was someone who had to eat a mammoth, I want that puppy's low and slow. <laughs> you need to get your crock pot out for the mammoth, for sure. I feel like you know yeah, a little yeah. bit of ev- about everything. I'm always so amazed in talking yeah. to you. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, even as a kid, I was so intrigued. And it was my escape. Hmm. Um, as a kid in foster care, where you move from home to home, um, for me, the books were always brought me home Hmm. into a sense of knowledge where I could constantly read. Uh, Even though I was dyslexic, I still found uh, a need to read because I had a teacher one time say, oh, you Indian, you'll just always be a dumbass Indian. And I kept thinking, (sighs) F you, I'm going to be a smartass Indian. (laughs) (laughs) So I worked really hard at reading and really hard at audio books and other such things too. And because I have... I wouldn't call it insomnia, but a natural cycle of I only sleep like three to four hours a day. Mm. So the rest of the time I'm awake. Yeah. What you gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? And I literally, I remember as in foster care, I'd, every home I went to, they would find books under my bed. Oh, wow. That I snagged, that I snagged from the school library. You mm-hmm. know, and eventually the school library would be like, okay, where's the books? Like, yeah. <laughs> And they'd be looking for them, and they'd be underneath my bed, and I'd have stacks of books there or in yeah. the closet. So I've read so many things from not just uh, non-knowledgeable things, but science fiction, science fact, and, mm. and, and such. And when I was a, a youth uh, homeless, my escape was the library. Because mm-hmm. I knew the librarian, she said, as long as I was reading, she couldn't kick me out. <laughs> wow. So... Yeah. I read. <laughs> Could you talk about um yeah, your your community garden a little bit and how it got started and some of the things that you're trying to implement in it? Cuz I think it's a uh, it's its own story of resilience in a way. A lot of people telling you you couldn't and you did anyway. <laughs> so, um 2004 actually I convinced my greening coordinator in West Broadway to approach clinic 
which at that time had owned the property at 545 Broadway, and uh, they just had grass there. And it turns out the reason why they just had grass there was because no one could really put a garden because underneath that grass, that, that couple inches of sod, was gravel. Because hmm. there at one time had been a, a brick house there hmm. back in 1950-something. And so when the house got demolished, well, they just filled it all in with gravel, and it became one large lot. Hmm. Well, yeah, you know, and I, so I approached the uh, clinic, uh, you know, because they had been using the land, uh, the, the uh, greening coordinator asked them way back in 2004, and they instead put up a lot of these westernized kind of raised bed things. And, and eventually it got to where people could not really grow there hmm. because it cost so much in water from the clinic. Mm. They were kind of getting like, eh, I don't know if we want to continue this. It's costing us a lot in water. And so I said, asked, uh, thought about it, and I said, well, you know, everyone's always asking me for my methods and that and want me to do theirs, and I'm not doing theirs. So, you know, I'm not there to see what's happening during winter, to see what kind of, you know, ground coverage they got and what in moisture and environment. But I know this plot a lot. Mm-hmm. So I approached the clinic and I said, I'd like to ask for a four-year land use agreement to where I have full reign over the four years to convert it from a westernized garden to a permaculture traditional garden. I know it's a challenge on gravel, but I guarantee you there will be no water costs, Hmm. uh, no importing of uh, soils, and um, total care. As well as the garden, it will be a free pick garden, so anyone in the community is allowed to pick from this garden. There will be no private plots mm-hmm. and no privatization of the space. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm tired of all these groups wanting it, but then nobody took care of it. And no one. Hmm. So in the fall of 2014 is when I took it over, and we did a, a major flip of soil onto, this, onto leaf material and straw and other materials which I utilized some young people in the community who wanted to learn, because I'm not allowed to date because of my neck injury and such. Mm-hmm. But uh, utilizing them and then uh, utilizing the method of bringing in leaf material in the fall, I contacted a couple of uh, guys in the community that were landscapers and needed a place to dump their leaves. Mm-hmm. Instead of taking the Brady landfill, they dumped it my spot. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, the Gete Bosman squash. I was given two. Two two seeds? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Two seeds. That's what I said. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. I got two seeds of this rare heritage squash. And I better be good. Yeah. <laughs> this has got to be your best work. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And there again, but because I did a more traditional method of growing to where it was in a, in a, a drought environment, which is what it was used to. Mm-hmm. wasn't used to rich soil. And when I did it that way, I went by 20 by 20 spot, we got uh, we got 20 huge squash. Oh, my Each gosh. one 11 pounds and up. Where ones who had instead babied it and did it the westernized way got two. Hmm. Yeah. So when you go from 20 squash, that each will have 100 seeds to two squash, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll go with the old method. And yeah. so with that, I've been able to pass out seeds galore 
Um, to, and I pass out more than two. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so much pressure. <laughs> yeah, you know, because now we're seeing it now interbreeding with other right. varieties. And some people are like, oh, that's terrible. We, we need to keep it pure. And it's like, no. Mm-hmm. We, we wanted to interbreed with other things. So it brings that sweetness and that heritage and that strength and the strain mm-hmm. to be able to make us a different varieties that mm-hmm. we'll be, you know, be able to handle there mm-hmm. too are drought situations that will be coming up mm-hmm. the archaeologist i know of dr lee sims told me he says in 20 years winnipeg is environment is going to be like north texas <laughs> gonna be dry as a bone <laughs> yeah he says so be ready for it and i say of course i know be ready for it and that was 11 years ago though oh <laughs> yeah. yeah so we only got nine years to change over and adapt Mm-hmm. to more of a permaculture method and drought-resistant plants, which originally were drought-resistant anyway. And stop watering those poor squash, man. I, you know, <laughs> same with some of our native beans. They're like, please stop. You know, I can't flower if you keep on watering me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and because of the method we use at the clinic garden, people see that. Yeah. They're like, oh, you must water all the time. And I'm like, nope. Yeah. Right, hmm. so that shows that the dew alone is a water source. Wow. And our native plants are used to that water dew at nighttime and none of this heavy watering. As long as you prepare the soil and the ground in the natural way of having that humus uh, material in it that holds that moisture in your pathways as well as in your soil, then you're good to go, man. <laughs> I gave teachings out for free because the way I saw it, like people are like, oh, well, you know, you can, you can uh, charge people a lot for these teachings on food security. And I said, yeah, but who am I going to teach? Yeah. The people who can afford to come to a $50 an hour, con- you know, consultation thing? No. Yeah. Those people who can afford that don't buy local food. Yeah. They're not in need of food. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm low income, I'm on disability, and I get $3.95 a day for food. That's not enough to live on. Those are the ones I want to reach. Right. As well as groups who can help facilitate the fact that we need to get back to collective growing and support your local farmer instead, just like the Good Food Club does. They are one of the few groups in the city that actually got it properly done is mm-hmm. to where you have a farmer you supply him with the monies to be able to plant what's needed he plants it he brings it into the into the city for the every week and everybody's got mm-hmm. if every community adopted a farmer in that method and that way our local farms would be totally supported mm-hmm. and not even worry about those main corporate farms that are screwing everything up <laughs> yeah Eventually, they're going to go under anyway, mm-hmm. and it'll go back to small farm in, and regenerative growing. Mm-hmm. I just gave a talk with Food Matters with about 40 farmers who are small farmers, and I let them know they're, they're vital mm-hmm. to the sequestering of carbon in their soil because of their methods, as well as getting back to real foods and real minerals and such in that food. Mm-hmm. which is lacking now because of desertification from monoculture. So it will be key 
to, uh, to the new way of uh, food production. There's also, people love to, anytime someone looks you up, they find this um, kind of fun fact, if you will, that you have been self-sufficient uh, food-wise within the city for many years now. Yeah, uh, 13 years I haven't been in a store. Yeah, wow. Yeah. My daughter checked me in a while ago and I was like a deer in headlights going, <laughs> what the frick, I have no clue what's here. Everything smells. Yeah. It's... Yeah, thank goodness I was wearing a mask because the smell of the detergents and everything was like, because yeah. I make my own detergent, I, you know, from orange peels and lemon peels from other people that I've gathered. Mm-hmm. And I make my own vinegar from it, which make, it makes my own cleaner, mm-hmm. as well as a big vinaigrette. Yeah. <laughs> as well as, you know, I locally forage. And locally foraging within a city is fabulous. I just go knock on the person's door and say, I know she got an apple tree. Yeah. Yeah. Care for me to take care of it. I'll take care of it and uh, clean up after it. And then in return, I get the use, you know. Mm-hmm. And my daughter has an apple tree. And that one apple tree last year got me... Five five gallon pails of apple chips. Wow. Twenty five yeah, twenty five flats of root fruit roll ups. Wow. As well as more than twenty bags of apples I gave away. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So do you think that we need a whole orchard? Please. Yeah. Well, people won't even know what to do with a whole orchard. You know? <laughs> so we don't need as much as we think. Mm-hmm. Even myself, once I started doing this, I was like Geez, I don't need to dehydrate 40 pounds of carrots to get me through winter. I barely got through 10. Yeah. Right? So now I've got carrots for another four years. <laughs> <laughs> no need for carrots this year. You know, when you have to think of out of outside the box, right? Because with my condition, I couldn't process stuff through the winter. And people say, oh, you got to eat fresh during winter. And I stopped and thought about it. Did my ancestors eat fresh during winter? Mm. Heck no. Mm-hmm. I'm only, only, I'm only second generation introduced to westernized food, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as how you eating it. Like beans, traditionally we didn't eat them like beans like Westerners do. You know, mm-hmm. we would cook them and then dry them and then grind them up and use them for flour. Mm-hmm. By cooking them up first and then grinding them up, it takes away that gassy part. Right. Right. So I make my, my tortillas and my breads from bean flour that I do that way, as well as my squash flour and hmm. other green materials I use for flour, which, you know, if it wasn't for the people of Peg was taking those dried goods to the, uh, the Selkirk settlement way back in the 1800s, they would have died. Mm-hmm. People of the Selkirk settlement, um, they lost their crops to the weather, and many other animals died because of the cold weather as well. And so the women of uh, Pegwis uh, told the chief to go to them with uh, these dried food, uh, dried vegetables, as well as dried meat and dried fish, and bring them back from, from death. Hmm. And that's happened with every single European incursion, from <laughs> Jamestown to, you know, uh, every yeah. single one. Yeah. It was not for the indigenous people sharing how to eat those foods, they all would have died off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ironic. <laughs> well, and it's part of our own traditional prophecy, though, that we were we were supposed to help. Right. Mm-hmm. And it would matter on how we would be treated. 
And if you were going to be treated wrongly, that would last for eight generations, but then that would change. And uh, dramatic change would happen to where it would go back to the Indigenous people's knowledge. Mm -hmm. Either way, they're going to get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I was thinking as well, I mean, it seems that seeds present this, you know, can present this really... uh, fertile opportunity to explore decolonization as as people return to traditional seed ways and traditional ways of of knowing and gardening and there's a huge opportunity for decolonization there um you know amongst indigenous people but also amongst westerners who are learning to unlearn some of these things that we brought over well and also learning that many laws were put in place to stop indigenous people from the economic aspect of food growing Mm-hmm. You know, the Indian Act itself, mm-hmm. if they ever looked up the, and I think every Canadian should be made to mm-hmm. look up the Indian Act and see what the Native people were subjected to, and still are. Yep. Many still are not allowed to have their own farms. There, many still are not allowed to use modern machinery, and much of their lands is still being leased out on 100-year leases to Westerners, who farm it for the hay for their animals thus depleting the soil in itself. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's taking time. Any Indigenous people who are gardening right now are doing so um, under secrecy, basically. <laughs> yeah. um, and it bothers me, I think, more so that people are sitting there going, oh, they're just lazy, they don't want to grow food. They were the original frickin' farmers, right? And Absolutely. the original carriers of all these seeds. But most people don't know that because that knowledge was not allowed to be passed on in order to subjugate the people. You have to make sure they're considered dumb. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know what they had and all this other stuff. When, and ones who are knowledge carriers know that's not true. And we are trying our best to share that with uh, with many non-Indigenous right? and And that's why many of those so-called white uh, customers that come from my teachings, not all of them return. <laughs> because, they don't want to hear it. Feedback from some who felt that they felt guilty. Yeah. Not to place guilt as much as to place atonement. Mm-hmm. You want truth and reconciliation? Mm-hmm. Then you got the truth first. Yeah. And sometimes the truth is hard to swallow, but you can't have one without the other. Yeah. Exactly. And I will state every single time that you need to know the truth first before you can expect me to so-called reconcile or feel fine about this whole situation. Mm -hmm. When you don't even know half the truth. Yeah. Right? So learn the truth first. Truth hurts, yes. Yeah. That's through that pain that you then can heal. But you can't heal if you yourself are sitting there. Well, I have no... uh, I had no nothing to do with it. Yeah. Like, excuse me, you're benefiting from it. Yeah. The family's benefiting from it, and the family's family's benefiting from it because that family can use that land as collateral. Native families can't. They can't use their land as collateral to buy any farm machinery because there again, the Indian Indian Act in itself says they're not allowed to use modern machinery on their land. To this day. So until people get that in their heads and understand that by actually looking it up and reading it, mm-hmm. you know, finding out that even if you were, were given a permit to be allowed to grow, you were not allowed to share it. Hmm. 
And if yeah. you're given the permit and you pay the permit in order to grow, you still were not given the permit allowed to take it off your land to the mill to, to be sold. And even if you were given that permit and you were able to take it off your land to be sold, you had to have a certain a certain amount of that product in order to sell. <laughs> so you became what was what the government deemed as a peasant farmer. And as a peasant farmer, you cannot sell your goods on the commodities trade. You had to have over 10,000 pounds worth in order to do so. You ain't going to get 10,000 pounds worth from a, from a mere 60 acres. I think um, another part of your story that I just find very inspiring is that you didn't learn a lot of this through, um, I guess, kind of like conventional methods. Like, you didn't grow up with mentors who were really there through every step, guiding you and teaching you necessarily in your younger years, or you didn't grow up, um, you know, going through formalized agriculture education per se, and yet you've been able to reconnect with all of this knowledge and to continue to share it and amplify it so widely beyond just yourself. Yeah, I appreciate that. And there again, I guess it took a lot of, uh, well, years of sleeping in between garages when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, sitting there starving, having an empty tummy for days on end, to the point that I literally would salivate watching someone eat a sandwich. But, uh, you know, I also knew that if I took care of people's backyards, that well, a lot of times them gram and then cookums and or I didn't know them as cookums, I knew them as babas. <laughs> they would come out and they'd bring me some holopchi or some um, pierogies and oh, you girl, you've been working so hard. Here's some food, you know. Mm-hmm. I will uh, find another way to do it, and whether it be digging in the dirt, I'll dig in the dirt. Mm-hmm. I love the dirt. <laughs> Dirt's fine. Yeah. Hey. Okay? Because it's not dirt, it's soil. And soil is the oil that, that gets that, uh, your whole body and your whole life going, you know. And without it, we, we, go, we die, right? mm-hmm. And I guess I'm just too tenacious to let that happen. Yeah. <laughs> Audrey, I was wondering if you would be able to sort of, like, share your life, <laughs> your entire life story. No, but, like, the, you know, kind of how you, how you came into this this realm and this uh kind of like this knowledge and this uh space in your community of like if if you feel comfortable sort of your story of like learning agriculture through different foster homes and then taking care of people's gardens and and that because i think that's like i don't know it's it's a really incredible journey it's called desperation my dear (laughs) yeah it's called being so hungry that you're willing to eat the weeds on the side of the road because you have no other choice. Mm-hmm. So when you're faced with these um, more walls of, you know, uh, just more walls. And uh, so it's through desperation that I had to do this. I had to find uh, other foods to eat and dress it up, make it taste good. <laughs> and, uh, at least I know the wild sorrel. I can walk along anywhere and find it. Mm-hmm. I can eat that. I can eat, you know, um, add some hyssop into some water or some mint 
and that'll help cool my body down from the heat of the day or help stave off some hunger. A lot of our native plants uh, that we use for tea help with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when you are put in that position, you will find ways to survive. Mm -hmm. We do have that resilience in us as human beings to, well, to to make it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, to be be honest, when I was uh, as young as the age of five, and and it's not to say I didn't try suicide more than once Mm -hmm. in my young life, didn't work, obviously. <laughs> but it, it also, it, it's a reality when you're faced with those kind of hardships and such that you just don't want to live. You just don't want to continue on. But then, you know, there's just something within you, whether as we were saying earlier about your DNA, your mitochondrial DNA, your grandmothers, your great-grandmothers are saying, get your ass up, <laughs> get out there. And so what if someone watches you while you're picking these rose hips for your vitamin C or you're picking these wild cherries for your your other vitamins or you're going and snagging someone's, you know, uh, as they call garden raiding back in my day, (laughs) you know, so what? Yeah. You you had to do what you had to do. Mm -hmm. And I did. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, it's helped me survive. But I also know that. If push comes to, comes to shove, my grandchildren will be able to make it. Mm-hmm. You know, they do know some of the plants. Not to say they're with me every day in the garden, that's for darn sure. Because as I, we know, not everyone is meant to be a bean grower. Mm-hmm. Some are meant to be bean counters. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Some are meant to be bean loaders. They're not going to be growers. We can't have everybody doing the growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so otherwise there wouldn't be other ways of knowing so you know allowing each of them to find their own path in their own way to where there can be a mutual respect amongst all to where we can keep that cycle of life going mm-hmm. so we stop using food as a commodity to hold above another person's head which is why in the garden that I run there is no uh, private plots and anybody is allowed to grow so we have are allowed to pick so we have it on our signage that Welcome, uh, there's food, help yourself, mm-hmm. right? Which kind of, for some reason, ticks off some other so-called uh, growers or gardeners. I call them so-called because any real gardener or grower should know that food is not a possession. It is a gift given by creation. and is a gift to be giving to others. And if you cannot get that as a grower, then you should not be growing because your food will, will be bitter. Hmm. That's why it's the old saying of the grower of a bitter fruit is a bitter person. You know? And that's the energy we all carry. Mm-hmm. And that energy goes throughout everything. Mm-hmm. So if we want to uh, keep things going in a good way, that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Do it with a smile. <laughs> and if someone comes to a garden and rips out a plant or two, he was like, oh, that's terrible. And I said, no, it's not. It's going to show you how resilient this plant is. So I'm going to replant it. But I'd rather that person take out their anger and frustration on a plant that I can replant than on a human mm-hmm. who's going to be hurt even more so by that act- that kind mm-hmm. of activity. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I've got no problem with someone coming through the garden and getting upset. Because mm-hmm. my, my, the earth can, can absorb that and change that. Mm-hmm.
being through everything that you've been through, what is, um, I don't know, what is something that gives you hope or that continues to motivate you to do the work that you do in the community? Um, I think my cupboards. Yeah. <laughs> in the sense that my cupboards are full, my freezer's full, and I have enough to share with others. Mm-hmm. Which is what I do. Uh, some people, you know, in the past were like, geez, how come you got all this stuff? What do you, you know, you're being greedy. And I said, you know, it reminds me of the story of, uh, of Grandmother Rabbit and this young boy who was back in the time when humans and animals lived together and they would share feasts and one little boy knows, geez, you know, Grandmother Rabbit, she keeps on taking so much food, puts it in her sack and takes off with it. And the grandfather told him, oh, never mind, it's none of your business. But she does. But the little boy thought, hmm, I don't know. This seems suspicious to me. Because, yeah, she's got a lot of bunnies, but she's taking a lot more than what she should be. Mm. Thinking that he should know what she should take and what she shouldn't. Even though his cook, his Muslim said, none of your business. So anyway, he decided one time, I'm going to follow her. See what she does with that food. And so he did. He followed grand, grandmother rabbit Wapos and, and as she followed her, he noticed she would stop along the way, on the way home. She would stop at the, the woodchuck's house, drop off food for the woodchuck. Then she would take it over to the skunk house, drop it off with some, some food at the skunk house. All along her way, she, she would drop off food for others. And by the time she got home, she had just enough for her own little ones. Mm-hmm. Then he remembered what Muslim said. None of your business. Mm-hmm. Right? She knows her business. And her business was to care for the others as well. So not to think badly upon one who gathers more than what you think they should. What matters is what they're doing with it. And that's still none of your business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so mind your own business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and with that, the young boy learned that, yeah, you know, you can't prejudge someone. Mm-hmm. And I've had it happen to me where people thought, oh, gee, she's taking so much, you know, mm-hmm. or she's gathering too much. But they don't realize that I give away a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I process it. I dry it. And when I come across someone in my community who goes, geez, I'm so tired. I've got, I've got no food. I've got no this. I say, hey, give me a minute. Mm-hmm. I run to my place, I get a, get together some of my dried goods and I take it to them. You hear? Mm-hmm. Now you got something that lasts you a few days mm-hmm. or a week or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And so it passes on that food knowledge and acceptance that food is not something that should be held upon high upon another person's head mm-hmm. where they have to work for it. No. Because you don't know if they're able to, right? Mm-hmm. And who are you to judge? Mm-hmm. And who's disturbing a food and who's not. Mm-hmm. As I say, you know, you, you got to walk a mile in our moccasins. Mm. You know? And that's, that is an old indigenous saying for a very good reason. Is that one mile in moccasins? You will learn and see a whole hell of a lot more mm-hmm. than you would ever want to. But should never place judgment until you do. Mm. Yeah. And I think we have to move away from this. I mean, a society that thinks that food is not a fundamental right, that everyone should have access, adequate access to culturally appropriate food, to have a choice of what they want to eat and when they want to eat it, all of these things. I mean, 
the fact that you feel like you need to go and get a wage to earn this right to eat and to nourish yourself is a real problem on a lot of levels. It's even the most mad peoples in, in prehistory did not do that. Mm-hmm. They still gave what was needed. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's this, there again, the colonization ideology. We've got a lot to learn in, um, in general, but a lot to learn in, in decolonizing our way of thinking and, and of appreciating these teachings. And coloni- yeah. And colonization doesn't mean just for indigenous people. That's what I need to get across to is that I've had people who are from Sweden and went back to uh, their heritage was Swedish. And a young friend of mine, she actually went back to Sweden and went to the Sami people mm. who were the oppressed people of Sweden mm-hmm. and lived with them for a while and who were reindeer herders. And a lot of the stuff she going when she came back, she goes, darn it, that elder there was telling me the same stuff that you're telling me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so oppression happens in every single group. Mm-hmm. It's not just uh, in North America. North America is the latest group mm-hmm. that has been colonized. But all the others were too. Mm-hmm. So we need to get away from there again. This uh, ideology of this is only mine, and this is uh, the only thing I can do. Mm-hmm. But that's not a reality. As a group, we can do a lot more. Mm-hmm. And it's about working together as groups, small groups, whichever group you choose. You know, get it together, work together. Yeah. And we can make that change happen. Because change is coming whether we want to deal with it or not, you know, it's coming. Yeah. And that's why I don't charge a lot for my teachings. If people want to come out, I will share with them what I can, but I, I, I'm i not going to sit there and put it into a book and then sell a book. Mm-hmm. Because right? the people that can afford my book can afford food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are not the ones I need to reach. The ones I need to reach are the ones who can't afford mm-hmm. food. The ones who can't afford food, if I can reach them in understanding that they're living in a time of privilege to be able to come to one of my teachings. But it's their responsibility now to share that food with others mm-hmm. and share the knowledge with others free of charge. Because they themselves got it so. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with me. I, I really feel... Ugh. Yeah, it's a gift. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, thank you for sharing so freely so many of your gifts and your wisdom. I mean, the world is richer for it, and there's no money exchanged. So thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate it, Audrey. I've learned so much from you just in a few few times of chatting, and I hope to uh, continue to take what I've learned and, and share it freely as you have. And that is huge, huge goodness in my heart that I feel because I know, you know, that more than as, you know, I, I used to think that because I told my auntie, she said, yeah, 10 people will come to the teachings, but not everyone's going to get it. She goes, that doesn't matter. Mm. As long as one out of 10 gets it and passes it on, that one person's going to reach their 10 mm-hmm. and their 10 and their 10. Mm-hmm. And the ones that need to know will grow. Seedheads is produced by the Bauda Family Initiative on Canadian Seed Security, a program of Seed Change. Seed Change's main office is located on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. You'll find Seedheads wherever you find your favorite podcasts.
This work is made possible thanks to our amazing donors and the incredible community of farmers and organizations we work with. To find episode transcripts and translations, learn more about our programs, and to support seed work in Canada, please visit seedsecurity.ca.